Welcome to Life of the School, episode 50. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Rachel Lytle. Rachel teaches honors and AP biology at Brentwood High School in Brentwood, Tennessee. Rachel just completed her fourth year of teaching, and she has already made a significant impact on the biology teaching community, including presenting at several NABT conferences. Rachel was also recently a first-time reader at the 2018 AP Biology exam. Rachel's early contributions to the classroom were recognized as she was the recipient of the NABT 2017 Outstanding New Biology Teacher Achievement Award. Rachel earned her BS, MS, and her Tennessee State Teaching License from Middle Tennessee State University. Welcome, Rachel. Hello. Hello. Nice to nice to see you again. Uh, we were, I said, when we got online, I was like, I haven't walked into a room and had you sitting in a chair right where I was going to sit for a whole week now. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's just last week. Yeah. And we were both acorns at the, at the AP read. So, um, and then, yeah, we, were we on the same question? Yeah. Three, four, five. Three, yeah. three, four, five. Yeah. There's two questions everyone gets at the read when you go there. It's like, what, what question are you on and how many years has this been? Yep. Although you may not have gotten the how many years has this been uh, as many as times as I did. Oh, no. Yeah. Because I had the obvious acorn and, you know, people aren't used to seeing me there. So, yeah. Well, and I had the obvious acorn too, but didn't stop people from coming up to me and saying, So, how I haven't seen you here before. How many years you've been doing this? I was like, <laughs> I was like, this is one. <laughs> so, but it was definitely a good time. Hopefully, we'll get into a little bit on what that was like um, as we go. So uh, yeah. th thanks for joining me here in summer. We are now officially in summer. You've been in summer for several weeks now. Oh, yeah, about a month. About a month, yeah. And um, my school ends um, next uh, week. This is going to come out the week after school ends. But our, our, our school year officially ends the Wednesday of the last week of June. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's nuts. That's crazy. That's yeah. crazy to me. But you go back to school in August, so. Yeah, we go back like August 1st. <laughs> yeah. And our first day next year is going to be September 4th, I think. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we, we get the same summer. It's just, it's just skewed. Yeah. We only just have July off in common. Um, so mm -hmm. a little difference between the North and the South, or maybe the Northeast and the rest of the country. Um, <laughs> <laughs> talking to everybody. All right, let's, let's get into it. I love to ask the question. I like to ask everyone to start. Um, how did you become a science teacher? What got you into the classroom? All right. So um, a lot of people that I listen to on this show, it seems like they did something else first, but I just went straight into it. So I guess in high school, I was really competitive with my older sister. I'm a middle <laughs> child. So I don't know if that's part of that, but she took AP biology. So it's like, oh, I have to take AP biology because I can't let her be better than me. Um, and so I ended up taking AP biology, realized how much I loved the subject and loved just learning about living things and all the complexities about them and things like that. So uh, started out that way. My mom is also a teacher. Uh, she originally taught like middle school math and now teaches theology actually at a private Catholic school. Mm -hmm. um, so there was kind of those two components, I guess, kind of came together and just going straight into college. I knew I wanted to teach biology. <laughs> yeah. And you went to middle Tennessee state um, and, and your undergrad was, was straight biology. 
Straight biology, yeah. So you do a biology major and then you minor in secondary education. That's how they have it set up for us. And so you take, instead of like focusing on one major section of biology, you took like two classes out of each concentration so that you'd be Mm -hmm. well-rounded. And then you would do your minor in secondary ed. Yeah. Yeah. And then you went on to get um, your MS and that had a teaching, there's a biology teaching focus. Yeah. So my original plan was to teach in at the private Catholic school I went to. So um, a lot of those schools around this area want you to have your master's in your subject area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how I kind of got into that role. So I went straight into my master's in biology and they kind of made an exception for me at MTSU, <laughs> luckily, to let me do my research in science education rather than like a typical biology thesis research project. So uh, I got really lucky. I, so in undergrad, I worked in the biology office, mm-hmm. uh, for like my work study. And I had a really good relationship with all of the faculty members, you know, cause I, they all came in, we'd like chat in the morning mm-hmm. um, or not, you know, give them their mail or whatever. But luckily one of them that was the science ed person currently at MTSU, I just, you know, they got this big grant from the National Science Foundation. Uh, it's a GK-12 grant. I don't, some people have heard of them. Uh, they've kind of stopped giving those out now and switched to other things. But it was about getting graduate students into high school classrooms. And the goal was to make the graduate students better at communicating their research, mm. since there is such a problem with people that are experts being able to communicate what they do to people that don't really know a lot about it. But my role was to assess the impact on the students. And so we kind of took a year and looked at students' research. Um, and they would do a project with a graduate student for a year in the classroom. And you give them a, you know attitude survey towards science at the beginning and the end and see kind of where they fell after having that whole research experience. That's neat. And I know that from going to um, NABT, I mentioned that I remembered seeing um, Grant Gardner uh, present in Providence that there's a lot of teaching research that's happening at MTSU. So I guess you were sort of steeped in this culture of, you know, research specifically about biology education. Yeah, it was just crazy lucky that that ended up happening. Um, and you know, Dr. Grant Gardner, he's awesome. I love him a lot. And he came in kind of towards the end of my master's. So I didn't get to work it with him as much as I may have liked to, but uh, I know he's, he had a couple of other graduate students that I got to talk to a lot. And yeah, he went to NABT and won an award. And, you know, so it's cool. They've got a lot going on there that's interesting to keep up with. Yeah, I'm sure you could keep in touch with him because I'm sure he's always looking for biology teachers to come back and uh, volunteer to be part of their their method studies. Yes, yes. They're always like, hey, do you want to work on this grant? Do you want to you be one of these teachers? <laughs> yeah. I tried to convince him that he needed a cohort in Massachusetts after his talk. <laughs> <laughs> How did that go? Uh, he, he didn't say no. He was very political and diplomatic about it. <laughs> <laughs> the concept of like his grant money is so thin that he had the ability to go that national or go that far was there. But uh, the truth be told, I mean, the work he was doing was very much about um, you know, the idea of sort of questioning techniques for students in sense making. Um, and it was all about the question of, you know, the having turn in talks and, you know, peers working out uh, methodology and using concepts like clickers and challenge questions and um, 
really the the opportunity to see where students are and then have them talk out and reason and use their own language to work out. And I had seen actually at a AAAS meeting, you know, four or five years earlier, a very similar talk. Uh, and I had already started incorporating some of the ideas. So his work was like really um, timely for me because I was revisiting some of the ideas of how do you talk to students in a way where you ask them and quiz them to see their opinions. And then, okay, so they don't agree or they have like this disparate views that are in the class and they're not on point. What do you do to help them there? And just telling them the right answer does not change their their intellectual stance. They will maybe briefly memorize the correct concept to get it right on test, but it doesn't have that long-term impact. So what are methodologies to get students to, you know, really engage in sense-making about a concept? And um, so to me, it was it was great talk. So I can just imagine the resources and the conversations you'd have with, um, you know, fellow future teachers and young people who are working towards that. Yeah, and I think I really need that. I mean, you know, this is only my fourth year, and I think I was lucky to have been connected to a bunch of people already before going in, but I know there's a lot of people that don't have those connections starting out. And so the, you know, the more you have going into it, the better you're going to be in those first few years. Yeah. So you were like already presenting at conferences and stuff like, it seems like you, like you got out of college. Were you even presenting at conferences before getting into the classroom? Yeah. So um, as part of, you know, for my thesis work, my thesis advisor, Dr. Kim Sadler, she's actually really um, a big part of NABT. She was, you know, the president of the four-year section and serves on several committees. So, you know, she took me down and had me present, you know, do the graduate poster session for my for my research. And I was like a kid on Christmas. I mean, when I got to NABT and saw, you know, the whole expo hall and and all the talks and, you know, I wanted to go to every single session. <laughs> it's just like, oh, this place is amazing, you know, and just talking to everybody. It's it's the best place. Uh, and I've, you know, I've been ever since that first year. And I always look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was I was saying I was joking, like I've been to a couple of them. And I was I was saying I think you've been to more NABTs than me um, <laughs> because I, I was looking it up and you've presented multiple different times in multiple different venues. And uh, it's a, it's this great idea. So you've got this this research base and you get your you're getting your degree and then you go out and you get a teaching job. So how did that sort of process work? I mean, I imagine like, I don't know how Tennessee works, but, you know, Massachusetts, it's a, it's a you got to go out and you got to find your jobs. Maybe they run it more like, you know, the NBA draft where they were like, oh, we got to get Rachel Lytle here at Brentwood. So like, how do the connections work for you to, to go through that process to get your job and, and specifically getting to be an AP biology teacher so early in your career? Yeah, so there was a lot of luck that went into that. So my connections really were more with like the higher ed, like four-year section people at NABT especially and, you know, at MTSU. So I really didn't have a lot of connections to the secondary level. And when I was going out, you know, I just applied to several counties around any anything I could apply to and ended up getting an interview at, you know, Williamson County Schools. It's, it's one of the it's, – like one of the top districts in the state and, you know, Brentwood high school, even within that district is the number one comprehensive school in the state. That's not a magnet school. So we don't test kids to get into it. Um, but just had an interview and our conversation just flowed really well. I mean, the assistant principal that ended up interviewing me asked me, I guess, all the right questions and I had all the right answers and, and we got along really well. Um, and so I was really excited to get that job and 
and everyone afterward was, you know, who did you know? And how did you get in? And that's, you know, a die, die to get job. And, and so, yeah, it was, that was just, I think luck that she was the one interviewing me <laughs> and <laughs> because that part went so well. And then as far as AP biology goes, so I taught just honors and standard biology there for one year. And then, you know, I always wanted to be AP biology, but the current AP biology teacher there was a really good teacher and she was in her, you know, young thirties. And so I was like, oh, I'm never going to get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll never get that job. But she ended up deciding to leave teaching. Um, she wanted to focus on her family. And so just that next year, they were like, hey, do you want to teach AP biology? And I was like, uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. And so uh, that was another kind of swing of luck. Um, and, you know, the fact that they trusted me to take that on after only one year also said a lot, you know, that they liked the things I was doing and, and it was a good fit for the school. So wow. that was exciting. Yeah. That's a, it's an amazing, it does seem like amazing ser- a series of luck steps, but you know, luck, <laughs> luck does favor the prepared. So, um, yes. <laughs> So like now you're going to be a second year teacher teaching AP, not, inti- <laughs> not intimidating at all. Like how, how did you like, you know, do you do an APSI? Did you like, what did you, what were the couple of steps that you took to be oh, yeah. like such a young teacher that was taking on this responsibility? Oh, it was, yeah, it was very shocking. And not only was I a second year teacher teaching AP, but I had four sections of it, <laughs> like 90 kids or something like that. 80 something kids taking AP biology and yeah, second year of teaching. So they did send me to an APSI. I went to one at Western Kentucky and had a great, a great leader and uh, learned a lot there. And when I got back, um, I, and when I was there, I got connected to the Facebook page, which was like critical to me. Um, you know, everyone on there is so helpful and post tons of resources. And then I found the Google shared drive and, you know, David Knefke, like his, his shared drive, like helped me a lot. And, uh, you know, along with the Paul Anderson videos. And so I just kind of took all these resources and, you know, I didn't have an overall plan (laughs) to begin with. just kind of like a unit by unit thing and you'd figure it out and you'd see what worked or I'd go to NABT in November and find more resources there. Which at this like, which was great, but at the same time, really stressed me out because I was like, "Oh my gosh, if I'd known about these like two months ago, I could have done those two months better." But um, you just, I just had to kind of, you know, take it what I had and you know start implement, and I would implement things mid year, um, and the kids were good with it. So we have a lot of young teachers at Brentwood High, so I think, and they like trying new things. So I think that culture really helped me be able to be successful. Yeah, I often, I mean, so I was not near first year teacher at all. I was probably, I don't know, year 15 when I started teaching AP, but I hadn't taught the AP before. And I look back and think of how wonderful my kids were the first year and how they, like, like, I really, I like, I made so many mistakes and I was so unfamiliar with so many things, but the kids were amazing. And they, yeah. did, they did great. And so um, I do think that there's so much that can help you early on dealing with the overwhelming information to take in when you yeah. have kids who are, you know, like they're invested in you doing well. So uh, having that connection yeah. is great. And then at our school, you know, a bunch of these kids that I was teaching, it was it was so kind of terrifying because 
we have like lots of national merit scholars and I probably had about 10 or 12 kids that got perfect ACT scores. And so you're up there presenting this information that you may not be 100% confident about yet. Um, and But I think that also helped too, because it created this kind of like, not like in a bad way, but a good argumentative kind of discussion about what was going on. And I did a lot of activities that were like self-discovery uh, that first year. And so it just created a good culture. Um, and I've kind of kept a lot of those things throughout the years too. That's neat. Yeah. So one of the things I got to do, as I was joking with you last week, I was going to stalk you online. And um, and I got one of the great articles I found was this. Uh, I, first, when I read it, it was a little, a little off-putting. But the, the opening question is like, so like, are you going to stay in the classroom? Like, you know, here you are, you're finishing your third year, you're going into your fourth year, you're getting this national teaching award. And like the reporter's question or whoever the person was asking, it was like, so you're going to stay in the classroom? Like that there was something, you know, like it was an inherent choice. And I thought your response was great. You, your quote was, uh, I now realize not only do I want to stay in the classroom, I want to stay in the classroom because of the constant change it provides. Change drives me as a teacher, as a learner, and as a person. I look forward to it each and every year of the school year. And so, so now that you're, you know, old and wise, um, cause you've been, <laughs> <laughs> you've been teaching for all these years now and, and you're there. I'm, for me, the, the career changes so much year to year. Uh, I'm curious, like, what are the changes that you've seen during these first four years of your career? And like, wh- where is that kind of, what's that next sort of piece for you in terms of like, what are you looking at building on in this upcoming year? Okay. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Sometimes when people just talk about teaching, I feel like they assume like, oh, you create a binder for each unit and <laughs> you just use that every year. And so they're like, well, what would you possibly need to be working on at school till 8 p.m.? <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I don't think they understand the change. And and I think that's just so exciting. Um, and yeah, so throughout these four years, I've seen just in myself, like starting with, you know, honors, moving to AP, the the need to like cover every single standard and for me to say all the words and say this is what this is and this is what this is is kind of starting to go away and um starting to realize that you know the like i said kids discovering those things or just the ability to integrate multiple concepts into one thing is um been a big part of what i see now and uh listening i've been you know, since I've been at ABT so much, I like love listening to Jen Fannerstill mm-hmm. talk about that kind of stuff. And her, you know, even just at the AP reading, she was in a little one of those little mini sessions talking about how, you know, you don't necessarily need a checklist of the LOs and the SPs you need to just do science and you need to have them analyzing data and you need to have them reading science and all that kind of thing. So and if you do those things, you know, granted, on the AP exam, they do need to have some background knowledge, but they give enough in that stimulus of the question for them to kind of figure it out. So kind of moving toward more toward that aspect rather than the this is this and this is this and this is this. Yeah. Kind of thing. You, you said something that I've said so many times in my life, like telling is not teaching. Um, right. And, and I think that's a, a trap. And I often I often get engaged in conversations with my fellow you know teachers about what we're doing. And I think it's, you know, as I've been thinking about this year, as I begin to the end of the year, more importantly, telling is not sense making like <laughs> that, yeah. like just because you say something to a kid and even if they can like internalize it for that test, it doesn't necessarily mean it makes any sense for them. 
Um, right. And yeah, what Jen was talking about was really, you know, she did a, and I went and I watched her talk about it and I've had conversations with her about this before that she, her thing was about tearing up the textbook. You know, like what happens when you mm-hmm. ask this like really complicated um, question, like scientific question, and it's going to touch upon all of these different domains in science as a result of this. Um, right. So what's more important, covering the textbook or engaging in good science or using the good science to engage in lots of concepts. And it's a, definitely a different view for people to take. So does that mean that you're now like you're not vetted to the textbook and you're going to ask all these exploratory questions or where are you on that path? Um, I'd say I'm somewhere in the middle. So, <laughs> you know, trying to get work away from it. Some There's, I guess, definitely certain units that I cling more to the, the book than I would like. But um, and it depends what's going on during the school year too, like what what kind of season that falls in. Um, so definitely some work to be done there. But yeah, just like she said, uncovering the textbook and stuff like that is is definitely where I'm trying to go. And I and I like to give, you know, kind of at the end of each unit or before a test, I just give them this table and it's just a sheet of paper and it's got, you know, big idea one, big idea two, big idea three, big idea four. And I just have them fill in you know, where did this concept fit in all four of the big ideas? And it's just the simplest thing ever, but it tries to make them start making those connections that this doesn't just fit in this one unit. That's neat. I like, I like, the, I like the framing of that. That's a good idea. So they're familiar with the, those broad categories and how to make these connections. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we just learned about enzymes. Okay. So where do these fit in all four of these in this whole scale and stuff like that? I'm going to have to get, I'm going to have to get that from you. Um, so <laughs> you have to share that with me. Yeah. I, so I, the other thing that I was thinking about as you're talking about, we were, you were talking about your relationship with the, the students and how good the students are. As I've been trying to, you know, uh, get a, you know, at least temporary separation from the textbook as my driver of, of the, of the course, um, Part of me also worries a little bit about the comfort level of my students because I teach in a very academic school with very high-powered kids and they are accustomed to covering chapters and covering things in a sequential order. And if suddenly you start asking broader questions and providing them the resources, but you jump around in the textbook, some students are very uncomfortable with that pathway. Have you have you dealt with any of that or thought about like where that fits into your, into your planning and your laying things out for students? Yeah, absolutely. Some of them, you know, they just immediately get really stressed out and they have this look on their face. That's like, Oh my gosh, like how, like, I don't know that she's teaching us what we need to know. And, and this, uh, yeah, just this fear of that they're not going to be able to perform on the exam. And so I just try to tie in, you know, kind of, like sprinkle in like, well, I was talking to the people that make the exam, <laughs> you know, <laughs> try to like play that up um, a little bit to make them more comfortable. But I do usually try to provide, um, you know, if they if they are one of those kids, I'll just say, well, you know, it's a little from this, this and this chapter. And and but if you, you know, know the resources we've been talking about and can do the skills we've been practicing in class, then you'll be you'll be great on the test. And so you just kind of have to, yeah, talk them down off the, off the textbook ledge. <laughs> yeah. I think you've just earned yourself like massive cred next year. So like when I, <laughs> when I was grading the APs, these were the mistakes students were making. You don't want to make those yeah. mistakes. Exactly. Exactly. I just sprinkle that in a little bit. 
and get yourself a rep, even though you're young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was. I felt there was. I don't know who was talking. It may it may have been Liz or, or somebody else who was talking about like, oh yeah, we have to get these young people, and you know, we're talking to the acorns, and it was you, and it was me, and I was like, we're like just not of the same generation. Like, yeah, I'm an acorn, <laughs> but I am not young. I'm like these old folks standing next to me here. <laughs> Yeah, they um, they were really concerned. You know, they they asked me a few times. Several people did. You know, my table leader and and chief reader, and they were like, "Well, you know, anything you think of that we can do, you you know, we know you don't like your age doesn't like doing the same things we do." And I was just like, "Well, I do like doing these things, you know, because <laughs> I you know I'm obsessed with NABT, and I like I don't know I like going to all of this stuff. So I don't know that I'm the one to ask about that, but I do try to recruit. I mean, there's there was actually three of us from our county that were at the reading wow. uh, and a good number of Tennessee readers. So, and we just started TNABT probably last year or the year before. Uh, so it's relatively new. And so we're trying to grow that a lot. And hopefully once we get a good following there, that'll start having a bigger impact on, on our state and maybe some more young people will start coming to the read. Yeah. I think it's a, it's an issue in all places. I mean, I'm in Massachusetts and, you know, I feel like that the average age of the Massachusetts Association of Biology teachers, the, the average age is like three years from retirement. Like that's kind of how I, um, mm-hmm. and, and there's a few different reasons for it. I mean, as I was at the, the read this year, I like, there's a reason I haven't been for several years. I mean, I didn't, you know, going what you were basing on, most people don't start teaching AP in their twenties. Like, right. You know, yeah. You know, so like yeah. I was, in my late thirties when I started and I, you know, I still have kids and, you know, my youngest is getting out of elementary school. So like, and I even felt, even though they're older and they're very competent, it's hard to get away. So I think there's a natural flow for when people have the time and space in their personal life and careers that lends it to people going to the AP read for the first time, you know, in their (laughs) forties, like that's, yeah. I mean, yeah, I feel like I'm kind of an anomaly. Like it's, you know, people don't give up AP easily. And so, yeah, to be this young teaching it and, you know, I don't have a family yet or or things like that that are tying me back. And I actually did have to get special permission to go because I missed some cheerleading practices, you know, <laughs> to coach that. So, um, yeah, I don't feel like that fits the the major, you know, the overall person who's at the read. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, talking to, I know you talked to both Valerie May and Robin Bellary there, and it was yeah. Robin Bellary's first uh, read, you know, and she's been mm-hmm. teaching AP for years and she has small girls and uh, Valerie May's first year was last year. So, you know, and I figure, I consider them sort of my contemporaries in terms of, you know, career path, you know, standpoint, even though they're more experienced at, at AP teaching than I am that like similar age group and that, that kind of component. So um, I think it is a dilemma to try to get people. Um, I guess my view would be, you want to get a cross section of mm-hmm. people within their teaching career. Um, and that right now the cross section is not very representative of people in their twenties and thirties. It's much more forties, fifties yeah. and sixties um, mm-hmm. who are doing the read. So I think it's a question of how do we then, you know, it's a lot of things in there that complicated to get people in their 20s and 30s that, that get to the read or to even at NABT or in the state associations, that would be a, a great first step. Yeah, yeah. So and because those don't have like the number of years you have to be teaching, I know that this was the first year I was eligible to go to the read because mm-hmm. you have to teach so many years before you can. I think they've lowered that now to two years um, of finished experience before the actual date of the read. Mm. That might help a little bit. And I know I'm, yeah, like I said, trying to work on people in my county coming, but all, yeah, getting in at the state level, I think is a major, a major um, 
contributor. Yeah, that'll be good. So, uh, so as we, we've already started talking about it, like, how did you feel about your first experience at the AP Read? Like, what were some of the takeaways you got? Um, the first was like, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, you walk into that room and there's so many people there and it's just kind of, it's nice to, you know, see so many people that are also so dedicated to their craft. Um, cause I know a lot of us get isolated at some points. Um, and I was really amazed by how organized everything was. I mean, that just was, that was astounding. Uh, that must've taken someone a lot of work. Um, and it was just really cool. And I like, I like the setup of the tables and how you get to meet and actually make connections, you know, with those people. Cause you're with them for so many days, you know, versus NABT, you do make all these connections, but you have to work on keeping those alive. Cause that's only, you know, so, like 48 hours that you're at that or mm-hmm. you've got like a whole week to have conversations with these people. And, um, I just think that like camaraderie, if we're all in this for the same reason and we all have the same goal, it was a really great feeling at the read. Yeah, there certainly was a, a I, there is this professional tone and tenor to the read and a ser- like a, a seriousness of purpose that does run through that, you know, whatever it was, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day. Uh, definitely mm-hmm. a, a very professional, professional tone that's set forward. Yes. Yeah. So let's go through nuts and bolts because, and this was my first read. So this is my, op- this is my opportunity to use you to unpack my experience. So uh, <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> so we get there and uh, so you get there. I don't know. Did you check in on, on the Sunday or, or did you check in yeah. Monday? Sunday. Yeah. So I got in Sunday, uh, go in, you get your badge, you get your questions. Um, you mm-hmm. sort of get your feet wet a little bit. I thought it was like ridiculously hot. It was 97 degrees and people were like, yeah, but it's not humid. I'm like, it's 97 degrees. It doesn't matter. And I was one of those. Yeah, it's not humid because Nashville, <laughs> it just you walk out. It feels like you're swimming. And I, I was just in Alabama and it was even worse. <laughs> I know. And I'm I'm like, I'm next to you. I'm next to Ryan Reardon from Alabama, <laughs> Lee Ferguson from Texas. And they're like, yeah, it's not that warm. I'm like, no, this is like walking on the sun. Those pale white people from the Northeast are not used to this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we go in on Monday and uh, we get a sort of our orientation. And I don't know, it was like, so I felt getting shepherded from place to place. Um, <laughs> I had a very inter- interesting action uh, interaction with uh, Jen Vanderstel, where she kind of told me to calm down even before, because <laughs> I think she was because she was like the tenth person to ask me if I had any questions and we hadn't done anything yet, and she like yeah. sort of like grabbed me a little bit and was like, "You just gotta take a breath there and calm down." <laughs> so I was like, "I'm gonna be fine. I'm gonna be fine." So, um, so then we go in and we get trained. We get our we know what questions we have and we get trained on the questions. Um, so like we were, that was actually, the, I think the first time we were sitting next to each other. Um, yeah, we were kind of being crap about that too. They were like two acorns shouldn't sit next to each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and I think we were both sitting in that area and we were sitting next to Ryan Reardon. And so we're going through the question. So like, how did you feel about the, the process of getting, you know, like up to speed in order to equally and fairly assess these three questions we had, question three, four, and five, the same as everybody else? As well, at first in that room, you know, during our training, after a while, I was kind of like, okay, like, do we need to keep asking this many questions? You know, like, do you, I got it. Like, I think I'm good. And then, you know, thinking back after you see all those tests and all the different things people or the kids wrote. And uh, then I was like, oh, I sh- maybe I should have asked more questions in that training. And so I think they do, you know, a pretty good job of of giving you different examples. And I like the the clicker aspect where they have us all, 
you know, grade one of them and try to see if we're on the same page based on what we click in. Uh, and I think that can identify some places. If we need to have a conversation, then you can have that conversation right there. Um, but what did you think about it? Yeah, I, I agreed. I thought that the clicker, so the, the way we did it is we were given um, the scoring guides and we were given booklets with example answers that the people who'd come there the three or four days before us had pulled examples. And I thought they did a really nice job picking examples that were like really clear, like ones where really most reasonable people should come to the same response that this is worth, you know, a four out of four or a three out of four. And then they picked a couple that were like, really all over the place. And I think there was one, there was one in particular where it was like 30% picked one, 30% picked another, 20%, like we were all over the place in terms of scores. Um, so I thought they did a nice job preparing us a little bit about the experience of what it's like to do this and how to read this language in there. Um, but I kind of had the same feeling as you in the sense that it was like, we kind of got bogged down asking questions about part of the rubric and without the experience of seeing lots and lots of other examples, it like there was an impatience there, like, all right, great, let's go actually look at the books. Um, and to me, actually, I thought that the the next thing we did, which was go out and sit at our tables and then uh, partner read and go through mm -hmm. like, uh, so we call them full, you know, we got a folder or a book of 12 student tests. And we went through and I don't know how you do it with your partner, but I took my book and I scored all of my um, answers and I put my scores um, for the three questions for every book on a sticky note, and I put it on the back of the book. And then when I was done there, I handed my folder over to uh, my partner, and they, I got her part, uh, and we went through and we graded. And then we took the two stickies and we put them side by side to see, did we agree or disagree? Was that sort of the same experience you had? Yeah, we did the exact same thing. And then we and we did that with actually two folders. Oh, okay. So two stacks of 12 at our table. And it, that did help too, you know, and it either it validated that you guys were on the same page or it brought up like, Hey, on this point, we're not agreeing. Yeah. And then you can, you're still confused, you know, ask your table leader, your TL, um, like, where are we off on, on this point? Yeah. Are these wavy lines <laughs> moving water? <laughs> are these waving lines <laughs> water or not? <laughs> are these wavy lines moving pollen? <laughs> <laughs> Why are there 12 boxes in this box? <laughs> yeah, I think I was just like so surprised um, at how many students missed the missed dependent variable. Yeah. You know? And I wondered about like, for me, it, I think there was definitely a, a, a group of kids who don't know the difference between dependent and independent variable. Yes. Um, yeah. But I think for me, the bigger takeaway was the number of students who were not able to filter the difference between background information and the mm -hmm. task they were supposed to complete. They weren't able to, they, I don't know if it was a case of, you know, conceptual reading or reading too fast because it's under pressure or whatever, but they were recreating the situation that was provided in the background information and not recreating the information they were given in the follow-up prompt. Right. Yeah. And you see that in question five too. I yeah. mean, when they're just relisting things stated in the prompt and and not answering that or the identify, you know, yeah. or things like that. Mm. Yeah, it made me, I, I don't know, I don't know what your, where your head went, but it was now making me think like, I'm now thinking about what what's the standard I ask for my students in terms of when I give them this prompt, how precise do I make their language? Do, do I ever accept where they should be able to tell me 
a trend and it's supposed to be like increasing or decreasing, but I accept like it impacts or it has a, mm -hmm. a big effect and they don't give me the specifics of directionality. Have I always consistently been good about if they're asking for that pattern, identifying the pattern as like an increasing or a decreasing pattern, or do I accept a sort of like broad language and I just assume that they knew what they're talking about without being that specific? Um, I feel like I'm pretty hard on that. And <laughs> it kind of gives me at first a bad rep with the kids, <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, cause I, you know, I always said things like that. And the others, uh, eight, the apes teacher, the AP environmental science teacher at our school has been to the read a lot too. And so, you know, he had kind of given me some pointers before I came. Um, and, and when I started teaching AP as well. And so I was always really specific about that. And then another one is like thrives instead of like, you know, more will survive or something like that. So mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, I know that you guys know what you're talking about, but the stranger reading your paper at the read doesn't know who you are. They don't know your background knowledge. And, oh, at one point this year, <laughs> I had a lot of trouble with the kids just using hand motions, <laughs> like really? not like on a test, but like if we were doing bell work or something and like I had a discussion and I asked a question, you know, I'd be like, well, tell me about like an inversion mutation and how that works. And they would just be like, they would just take their fingers and turn them around. And I was yeah. like, I can't fly you to Kansas City to have you stand at the table next to your reader and give them hand motions. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, all right, you guys have to start, you know, explaining yourselves in words. So now that you're like, because I generally consider myself fairly tough as well, um, but like, did you find any of the like student speak or student language conversations we have of how to interpret those phrasing? Did that maybe like soften you a little bit in terms of how oh. you're going to help with your students upcoming year? I do feel like, yeah, I feel like I could be softer <laughs> like <laughs> on some of the things that they were like, well, yeah, you, you can tell from that that they know what they mean. And so, or, or a lot of the questions we were on had to do with comparisons. And so, you know, just words like lesser or, you know, more or things like that would give them both sides of a point sometimes. And so uh, I think that was a little eye opening and will, will help me in the future for sure. Yeah, I was describing to somebody that it was amazing how you could read something and say, wow, this is brilliantly written, super clear, nice sentence structure, but it doesn't actually say anything. Yes, yes. And at the same time, there were a handful of, this is terribly written. This is so poorly communicated. But all of the ideas are there. They've done their comparison. They have the trend. It's in there. It's not well written at all, but you can read the student language and pull it out. They have earned the points. Yeah, like they misspelled experiment, but everything else <laughs> looks great. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, or the interesting yeah. wordings. Or but the, I, I think that was sort of an interesting... Um, I mean, that that's a separate issue that like I don't want my students to end the year and be like terrible at communicating, but have right ideas. I want them to both be good yes. communicators and have the right ideas. Um, but I think that personally, I, I do question historically whether I've let students who are good writers um, get away with not necessarily having as clean ideas as they could because they dazzled me with language. Yes. Yeah, I could see that being a being a worry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's just, again, something that sort of, it's something I've thought about in the past, but because of this experience, it's now made it a little bit more acute to say, when I read these, I'm going to read them through this different lens. I'm going to read them of the, I know what it's like to grade 700 essays in a day. And, you know, yeah. yeah. 
So it'll be interesting going forward. Well, now I'm like, okay, but you know, because of question four, I'm like, all right, I have to do stats like way lots more stats. Yeah, lots more stats. Um, and compare stats comparisons. Like I think that was the like how do we how do we incorporate those words? And again, something that I know how to do, but um, I'll tell you, I I will sort of confess here. I I take the test myself, um, and having scored that, I would have only given myself a three out of four on my score because I don't think uh-huh. I I don't think I would have hit. I actually I know I did not hit that comparison point for that second part of 4A. Like I having looked at my own answer, I was like, yeah, if I was grading this and it was a student response, I would I would not give myself all four points on that. So if I'm supposed to be preparing my students, where do I have to build those lessons in so they can make sense on that? Um, so yeah, I 100% agree with you on that. <laughs> Takeaway. I got to do better next year. <laughs> All right. So, um, so now we're getting, we're moving to the class. Well, you were in the middle of the summer, so you're like totally off, but like three weeks from now, you're going to be like, like it's going to come to you and you're going to be like, all right, I got to get ready for the year. Like, what are you really looking forward to incorporating? What are some of the things you're looking forward to in the, the next year or two in your classroom? Well, as, so like I said, I've gotten more comfortable with um, integrating things and, and doing more things like combined and, and, you know, not so attached to the textbook. But another thing, probably because of the influence of my master's thesis research about student attitudes is I just try to look for, you know, relevancy and connections. And a lot of these kids that I teach are juniors or seniors, and they actually do want to go into, you know, like biotech or medical school or things like that. So I try to get um, some speakers in throughout the year that that can, you know, that are in those fields and usually younger ones too, um, which is nice since I am young, there are mm-hmm. people I went to grad school with that are doing those things. And so I'll say, you know, when are you off? Like, can you come talk to my kids? And inevitably they hit on some learning target or on some science practice, like just, just by talking about their research and what they do. And so I think it hits, you know, multiple things with, uh, increasing students' attitudes toward, you know, what it looks like to be in that field and uh, connecting back to the class. So I've had, uh, yeah, friends from grad school come in and talk about their research. In the past, I've done trips to MTSU uh, where they get to meet some of the professors and learn about what they're doing. And this year, um, and hopefully over the next couple of years, after our first TNABT meeting, we've been talking to Hudson Alpha, mm. which is a big biotech presence close by yeah. um, and talking to them and I'm trying to get uh, since our county has you know I've got three sections of AP next year I know a few other schools in the county also have three sections so we've talked about how it'd be cool to get all of those AP students in one room and have the Hudson Alpha company come present on you know the top 10 biotech discoveries and do some they said they could do some interactive stuff with them too so um it's kind of more like where I'm heading, I think, in this next couple of years is trying to get more of those genuine in-person interactions. Yeah. Get them to sort of see beyond the school, take those long-term views. Yes. And yeah, because so many of them, are they're so stressed out about test scores and about, um, you know, a lot of them are taking like seven AP classes at once and what what grads or what not grad school, sorry, <laughs> what, um, you know, what university they're going to get into and, and what essays they need to write for their scholarship applications and just all this stuff. And so it's nice to kind of get them out of that and think about, you know, in a little while, this is what you could be doing. Like, and you do, you know, the stress of 
all that stuff at some point will lead to a, a great ending for you. Yeah. Also, when they don't know, like if they have this uncertainty that they're just supposed to like have this amorphous success, but they don't really know in what realms or like what that looks like or what kind of, you know, how have other people achieved the successes of right. the types of lives that they, they may want to lead. Um, I think that is more stressful. I think uncertainty, particularly for certain types of students is super, super stressful. So anytime you can see a model of success, um, and happiness and people who got through to the other side of that college process, that's very, um, that can be comforting. So. Yes, yes, exactly. And talk about, you know, yes, it was hard to get through that. And like, these are some of the things that I did during med school or during grad school or whatever that helped with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's cool for them to see. Yeah, that's neat. All right. So uh, when you're not teaching um, in I know you're running cheerleading, um, but uh, when you're not teaching, uh, what do you like to do? Yeah. So, yeah, like you said, I uh, coach the freshman cheerleading team. So, you know, and during football season, that's a big presence. Um, in summer, we just had cheerleading camp right after the AP read. So I just went straight to Alabama for four days of of yelling and screaming and excitement, <laughs> which is a big difference from sitting in a room silently from eight to five. <laughs> quite quite um, different. <laughs> uh, so I kind of have culture shock there. But I also work in a restaurant like one night a week. And so that's, um, it can be kind of fun. Um, I like to just like take walks around at Radnor Lake um, to decompress sometimes. Um, I like listening to your podcast (laughs) to get new ideas. Um, And I do a lot of reading. And then I like to, um, like at the read, I wore that Nashville t-shirt that had the unicorn on it. I like to do new things in Nashville because there's always new things to do in Nashville. And so going to Fred's games or a new brunch place or any of that stuff is kind of my realm. Um, when I have time off. Yeah. It's a nice vibrant city. It is. It's, there's always something new. There's always something going on. Uh, so it's really easy to any night or any, you know, Sunday, just kind of get out and do something new. Yeah, I think I'd probably spend a lot of time going and watching music in small places, <laughs> personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah, and you can discover great people that way. I mean, that's how they get discovered here anyway, so. Yeah. Cool. All right, so before we get to Picks the Episode, do you have any questions for me? Well, is what do you like to do in your free time? Um, well, I have, I have a family. Yeah. I mean, I spend a lot of time with my family, um, as I said, they have the two boys, um, that are 15 and just about to turn 11. So we spend a lot of time together. And then, um, my decompression time is running. Um, when we were at the read, um, I got up and ran every morning. I got up at five 30 and went out and did the river run. And, um, I ran a couple of times with Desi. Uh, <laughs> we ran out together. She yelled at me for running too fast every single time. And I was like, you're setting the pace. But, uh, that was nice. We went out on like a couple of four or five mile runs, um, out on the, out of the water. But yeah, that's, that's predominantly what I do. Um, I spend a lot of time. I live in very wooded surrounds, so there's trails all around me. So, um, I just distract, distractedly run through the trails and, um, I'm looking forward to summer cause I do some reading as well. Um, and I was joking, I, I get through like three or four books during the entire school year because I read like five pages at a time, 10 pages at a time. I just can't get very far, but during the summer I actually will have some sustained time to sit down and I actually will read a book and it will only take me a week and then I can pick up another one. And, um, so I, I do look forward to that. So 
Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, my I think my hobby is working on being a better science teacher, which may not be the best <laughs> work-life balance, but I think that's <laughs> that's my probably my number one hobby is uh, working on my teaching. So I got to work on that. Yeah, you know, by listening to your podcast and everything and, and reading. Yeah. The books I read are always about biology or biology teaching. So. Yeah. All right, so I think we've now perfectly transitioned into your pick, into your pick of the episode because your pick, your pick is, I think, just about that. So, so Rachel, what is your pick of the episode? All right, so my pick is um, a few years ago. Well, I guess it's 2017. Uh, Mary Pat Winder Winderoth, I think, um, came and spoke at the NABT conference. She's one of the general session speakers, so one of the major ones. And her research is in biology education, and she's from the University of Washington. Um, but it was just really cool because she had all of this data to support different educational practices in specifically biology education. And she's, you know, kind of addressed the fact that people say that this is better, that this is better. But then when you ask them for data, they don't have anything to back it up. And she's like, I'm a scientist, you know, I want data to back up the things that I'm, that I'm doing in my classroom. And so she gave a really great talk, but at the end, she recommended all of these books, um, and one of them is called Small Teaching, and it's by James M. Lang. And it just has a lot of, it's really about, it's education-based, not necessarily biology-based, but it's got a lot of just little tips, little small things that you can do um, that will change the way that you're teaching and will change the way that your students are learning. And um, a lot of things, you know, may seem familiar, like they seem familiar to me, but they're things that you might need to like refocus on or that you'd forgotten about for a little while. And so I think there's a lot of things in it that I'll be able to um, kind of refocus on when the school year starts for me, August 1st. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a neat idea. Um, and I would also say, I mean, as somebody who's gone through, you know, many iterations of your career and you go through, um, a lot of the times I tried something for the first time like oh i read in a technique oh i'm going to put all my students names on a popsicle stick and i'm going to use them the first time i did that like i remember doing that and trying it and i wasn't able to make it a habit or routine or work in my personality but then i would see it again later and then i would come back to it and i would reinvest or i would look at it from a different view and i would be able to incorporate it so i think revisiting things even if they're concepts or ideas that you're familiar with is useful because the, maybe the example or your experience that you've had in the last year or two since you first saw that idea is going to now be different than the first time you saw that view. So I think that um, it is nice to get reacquainted with some ideas that work in different classrooms and then sort of look through the lens of what is your classroom like now and do these things work? Yeah, and it's nice. Um, and sometimes it just validates things that you already do. <laughs> so it makes you feel better. <laughs> but there's this one, the first chapter is about knowledge. And so I feel like so many, so often we get caught up in talking about application of things that we forget. You know, you have to know something before you can apply it. And there's this, you know, it addresses the fact that people say with Google, you know, the omnipresence of Google, you don't really have to know anything anymore. But there's this great quote in the book, and it says, you can't think creatively about information unless you have information in your head to think about. Yeah. And I was like, that's perfect. You know, the kids are like, well, why do I need to memorize this? Or why do I need to know that? And it's like, well, cause you have to have the two things in your head before you can link them and start applying them in different ways. So. Yeah. I think that balance of, of what, cause I think the, the backlash is against like 
what used to be smart was the person who had all the things in their head. Um, right. <laughs> and now with Google, you don't have to have all the things in your head, but you still have, do have to have something there. Something's in your head. <laughs> and, and, and what that something is, is now different than what it used to be. Um, and so, yeah, it's a little bit, that's fascinating. I'll definitely have to check that one out. Um, it also sounds very manageable. Yes, <laughs> it's, it, it's, yeah, called, small it's called small, <laughs> small teaching. That sounds perfect. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, my pick is um, this is going to when this episode comes out, I will have just flown back from Milwaukee, uh, where I will have abandoned my school for the last couple of days because we got four <laughs> snow days in March and it totally threw my end of the year in total chaos. But uh, I'm going to the Milwaukee School of Engineering to go to their modeling the molecular world. I think that's the title of it. Um, but they're going to, they're a group that teams up with a group called 3D Molecular Designs um, that build molecular models for the classroom. And I know personally, I have some of these. Uh, I, I have been using their water molecules for years and years and years. I just got their uh, DNA transcription translation one. They also have a phospholipid modeling. Um, so I don't know. Do you have any of those models? Do you use any of those? Yeah. So, you know, after my first year at NABT, when I was like, whoa, look at all this stuff. That, that was one the booth that I was the most obsessed with. Uh, Cause I think those are the things that are the hardest for the kids to visualize. And so when we saw that we ordered the, the protein synthesis one and the DNA replication kits for our students. And this year, actually our counties decided to get rid of textbooks unless you're an AP class for the sciences. And they built these like online platforms of resources, but they also bought all those kits for all the schools in the county. Wow. So that's nice that they'll have those now um, and see how they like them. Yeah, I, I have been using several of the models uh, for years and we're getting more of them. And so like I'm super excited about, you know, going out and like learning about the model component because I've been joking that like, you know, two, three years ago, I was like, this word modeling keeps appearing everywhere. I know it's important. I'm not sure I know what it is. I actually think I have a pretty good grasp on it. But now I'm, I think I, as sort of discussing, you know, the, the small teaching idea, I think sometimes you have to get to a place and now you have to sit back down and say, all right, first time I saw these, I think the first time I saw the, these ones was in, gosh, it must've been like seven or eight years ago when NSTA was in San Francisco and I went out there and I remember going to the booth, similar to your experience at NBT and watching the 3D molecular designs booth and talking to them and seeing them and going, oh, these are amazing. These are great. And I incorporated some of them well and some of them not so well, but now I'm in a very different place. So when it comes to modeling, so I'm excited about seeing that. And I was shocked that I had never put 3D molecular designs um, kits in my show notes and has never made it a pick. So uh, this is what my next couple of weeks are going to be all about. And I'm looking forward to using them next year. So if you haven't seen them, you should check out that link. All right. So thank you so much for joining me, Rachel. I know you had a, a tough week uh, cheerleading and we, we were able to organize this uh, and being fully game on this. I so wanted to record when we were in Kansas City, but I was like, everybody was so fried at the end of the day. I was like, I can't impose on that. So I appreciate you agreeing to do it a week later. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I needed that time to do us. <laughs> yeah, good. All right. Um, so let me give my show notes. Uh, you can support this episode by going to patreon.com slash lots. Um, I send out my episodes a little bit earlier to my Patreons and you also get invited into a Slack community with the supporters of John Darko and David Kanufke as well as myself. Uh, music on this and every episode is provided by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. Uh, you can get show notes in addition to on the Patreon page, but also at lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. Uh, you have a convoluted school 
school related. So if you want to, if you want to be a student of Rachel, you could follow her on Twitter. Um, I will tweet this out using her link so you could see that. But I think that is it's mostly your school account for your students, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, so maybe unless you want to see what she's doing in class, but maybe you want to, but I will definitely tweet that out next week when I send that out. All right, so thanks for joining me, and I'll talk to everybody soon. <laughs>